Hello, welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. We are a nonprofit newsroom covering all levels of education. Being a kid today involves being constantly tracked and monitored. Parents and friends post images on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. Learning management systems send alerts to parents about missed assignments or falling grades. And smartphones and smartwatches let families constantly pinpoint the locations of their kids at all times. And that can make it hard for today's students to get used to solving their own problems and learning from the many small failures that are meant to happen in school. That's the argument of Devorah Heitner, an author who advises schools on social media and tech issues. She has talked to hundreds of kids, parents, and educators at schools across the country about the pros and cons of this changing media and tech landscape we're in. And those conversations inform her latest book called Growing Up in Public, Coming of Age in a Digital World. Well, kids are much more searchable. People outside of their own immediate family, their own community know about them because parents are sharing about them on social media. So there's just a level of information that's out there about young people growing up today that's shared in their school communities, in their in their families that because of social media and things like YouTube is just much more public and searchable than we were and then add facial recognition and other things to that and it's it's a lot of data that's out there about our kids. Heitner says the answer is not to throw out all technology. In fact, in the interviews that she did with students for her book, she said she heard plenty of positives. I'm really a techno-optimist, I would say, and so I'm not here saying this is all terrible for kids. On the other hand, kids have had very stressful experiences with things like remote school or social media at times, and so I wanted to capture the full breadth of, I think, the mixed experience of growing up online, which is neither sort of, I think, net positive or net negative for a lot of kids, but kind of mixed. So what can educators and parents do as they help students grow up in this world? That is the main question we are digging into this week. So let's get to it. Here is my conversation with Devorah Heitner. So I, I did want to just kind of st- structure our time as as kind of going through the coming of age cycle um, and uh, and how things are different throughout the the school and, and growth process for kids these days. And, and I guess, so starting from an early age, it sounds like there are new issues. You note that even some of the tools that schools use can kind of pose some challenges for kids um, as they developed. I think you mentioned, um, not to pick on any one tool, but like Class Dojo and some of these um, services that um, that are pretty popular in schools, pretty prevalent. Um, and it seems like it can be, um, th- there can be aspects of it that are, um, can cause some new issues for, for, for the education process and for the kids and parents, right? Absolutely. I mean, something like Class Dojo, which is definitely a well-intentioned app from everything I can see. I mean, I don't think anybody's out here to like harm kids, you know, intentionally or make families more stressed. Um, but both online grading portals and things like Class Dojo and Dojo typically is used in elementary schools. And just remind people what that is. I know I didn't I didn't do a good job of that. Yeah. Behavior <laughs> kind of monitoring app, if you will, although I think they would say classroom management app probably, but I would say behavior monitoring. And 
it allows for teachers to pretty closely share, you know, data about how kids are doing in school with behavior with parents. Even at an early age, right? Right. And also challenging aspects. And sometimes parents, you know, sometimes teachers are sharing this data in a more collective way. Sometimes they're using the app because the app has incentives. The app gives kids avatars and then, you know, your avatar can like get cool different things. You know, if your Mm -hmm. table or you earn points and a lot of, a lot of teachers who are fans of the app will say, okay, well, we're only using it in a positive way. We're not dinging kids or taking away points or doing negative points. But even if some kids are getting publicly positive points and other kids are not, I would argue that that can be very shaming and isolating for kids who struggle. And what I argue in growing up in public is that what we see with these apps is they kind of just tell us what we already know. Like if you have a child struggling to self-regulate, they're going to have a hard time getting points in the app or not losing points. And if you have a kid who is good at self-regulating, they're going to keep getting the, you know, quiet table points or whatever. And I don't, I don't believe it, it changes behavior. It may bring about short-term compliance, but it doesn't bring about lasting change. And when kids are shamed or sometimes feel more anxious that their parents will know that they're, you know, spoke without raising their hand or did what, you know, violated whatever classroom, you know, policy, then it can make things worse because it can actually increase parental anxiety. It can increase the child's anxiety. And there may be other solutions, whether that's a kid who didn't get breakfast and we need to make sure that kid is getting a meal before school, hmm. whether that's a kid who is is neurodiverse in some way and maybe needs to be better supported. So simply tracking the data and using that data to try to push the child toward compliance or motivate the child toward compliance is not always a, a, a full picture. So I, I think it's problematic for neurodiverse kids. It's problematic for kids who may have other things going on in their lives that are affecting behavior. And it, again, also gives parents, if, if parents who have a kid who's struggling to self-regulate probably already know that. Like you raised that kid, you know that they're right. struggling to self-regulate. You may be doing a lot of things at home to help and it's still not working because maybe the kid is just wired differently and needs something really different at school in terms of support. So these apps, I think can really make parents and kids feel terrible. And that's the worry that I have. And I talked to several people in school districts who don't allow their teachers to use the app because these are apps that individual teachers adopt also without the school necessarily having a policy around how they're used. Right. So it can be really piecemeal. Yeah, where they're just using the translation feature. And it's really amazing because now you can communicate to parents in Tagalog or, you know, or do or something. And like, that's an amazing feature, right? And I'm I'm here for it. I think that's great, right? We want to be able to communicate with parents in, in multiple languages. And if, if the app helps with that, that's great. But when we're starting to use behavior points to try to control behavior, that behaviorist stuff, whether it's a flip chart at the front of the room, writing kids' names on the board, or using Class Dojo, all of it, I think is equally problematic. Yeah, you, you said the word compliance. What, what do you mean by that word? getting kids to do what we want. Right. And I mean, school is easier if kids just line up when we tell them to, but that's not always what happens. Yeah. And, and in a way, it sounds like you're kind of saying that by installing these apps and, and sort of tracking and rewarding certain things in a datafied way, it sort of, it sort of sets a lot of the tone maybe. 
Absolutely. And I think the additional sort of threat, frankly, of the fact that it's shared with parents lets kids not even escape the behaviorist aspects of schools. And Class Dojo had a paid add-on where parents could give kids behavior points at home on Dojo. And I just thought, no, 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 like, let's not, let's not do that. We, we, home shouldn't be a place with this kind of, you know, (laughs) Skinnerism going on. It's just, it's really important that we resist these, these, this way of getting kids to comply and look at ways to get kids to buy into school and have voice and choice in school and a home and a community at school. And so the alternative, I guess the, the, the kind of um, vibe you would prefer or that you're recommending is what? Like, what would you say to a teacher or a system that is, you know, like looking at the the real challenges of keeping, you know, managing the classroom behavior so they can get the, the academics or any anything they want to do and having um, and obviously and helping the children develop as, as best, you know, to, to become their best selves. What the administrator I spoke to in St. Vrain, Colorado, in the book talked about was giving those teachers support on classroom behavior. And also, if a kid is really struggling with behavior, maybe that kid does need a neuropsych eval. Maybe they need support. Maybe they need a one-to-one aid. But trying to, you know, sort of shame them into compliance by giving and taking away points publicly or the really horrifying stories I heard were like, you know, kids were getting rewarded with extra recess who have good behavior and kept inside at recess with bad behavior, which is the opposite of what kids who are struggling with behavior need recess, you know, the most, like those are the kids who really need recess, right? Nobody should have recess. You know, I think there should be like a Geneva convention of recess that like recess should never be taken away. You point, you paint the scene. Yeah. You paint the scene at one point in the book. I remember that you're like the, having the kids that were just, just sort of misbehaved, quote unquote, staring out the window, watching the other kids being able to burn off energy essentially at recess. Yeah, that's not how school should work. And again, recess should be, and and things like this are should be literally the right of children. This is not a reward for good behavior. Recess is part of the school day that all, you know, kids, I mean, I think up through middle school even, but certainly elementary school kids should have a right to have. And this is when we think about behavior and compliance, we're asking the wrong questions. Again, if a kid is struggling with the classroom society, right, and being part of a classroom community, which, and, and this is where we teach kids also how to be part of online communities, by the way, like recess, you know, when people are like, oh, the kids are having trouble with group texts, I'm like, we'll teach them to talk to each other at lunch and recess. Like all of these social skills are connected. Online social skills are not a world apart from in-person and face-to-face social skills. Kids need to learn this from practice, and some kids may need support and a social group and other things to learn that, but shaming them into compliance, making other kids actually resent the kids who struggle by taking away points from the table if you're with the kid who can't stop talking and has impulsivity, and, and you know, you're doing, like again, collective punishment in the classroom on Class Dojo by taking points from their whole table, everyone's going to hate and shun that kid now because they're struggling to self-regulate. How can we instead support that kid? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's really interesting the the, what it sounds like here, an unintended consequence possibly of like installing these kind of, you know, uh, wired systems into the process of, of classrooms. Yeah. And it, it continues with grading apps. And I think a lot of teachers have found that grading apps can turn school into a very stressful place for all of them, including teachers, because it turns kids into these points obsessed 
you know, monsters in a way, both Dojo and, you know, a lot of, a lot of teachers told me I hated what Dojo did to my students. It turned them into sort of points obsessed monsters and grades, grading apps can do the same thing because they have so much access to their GPA that they know their running number on any given day. And they're kind of coming to their teacher, like, what do I need to do to get to a 3.205 when I'm at a 3.20 or whatever? They're, they're really focusing on the, those numbers rather than learning. And when we take away the emphasis on learning and, and the focus is on this external evaluation constantly with the grading app or Dojo, I think it's, it's really a problem. We need to help kids focus on their experience at school, learning things that fascinate them, learning how to be a learner. That's what sets them up to be an adult in this society where learning content in the age of the internet is less important than learning how to be a learner, how to be curious how to find answers, how to experiment, how to collaborate. These are the 21st century skills that our kids need. You know, it seems counterintuitive, frankly, when I first struck, you know, like this idea that somehow an online grade book, which seems very, um, you know, like routine and and sort of uh, uncontroversial at first, perhaps to say like, okay, well, there's now there's a, you know, the grades are kept in this, digital database that parents can check at any time and it might even you know like alert them uh, more often about here's the the how your student is doing but there are consequences to that kind of tool being uh, all the but time my son's high school is obsessed with getting us to check can canvas which is their what they use and it's where all the assignments are so it's more than an online grading portal it's 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 the learning management system, right? And I when I taught in higher ed, we had them too. Various I've worked with various different you know LMSs, and sure. there are huge advantages to them as well. I'm not I'm not here to say like LMSs are only bad, right? But I think turning off the access to the grading portions some of the time, which you know Challenge Success recommends out out of Stanford and other people have recommended for mental health reasons, like kids shouldn't be able to check their stuff in the middle of the night. Kids shouldn't be able to. During the school day, if you're sitting in one class and you can get your grades in another class, or I just saw a really interesting tweet from a young person in college with a note like, you're at a party and you get your grade, you know, like you get the little notification and you're literally at a party and your exam grade comes in. Like, and I just think nobody ever really thought about that with online grading. Like, maybe you should just be at AP US History and not be getting your calculus grade right now. And I frankly think maybe you should just be at the party on Saturday night and not be getting your grade right now. Like, just because your professor entered the grade on Saturday night, maybe that's not the ideal time for you to get your grade. Right. Yeah. So, so this constancy of emphasizing the where you stand in the point system, the grading. And for parents to feel like they're supposed to monitor, which allows kids to kind of outsource their executive function to their nagging parents. And frankly, as an anxious parent myself of a new ninth grader who, you know, has a tremendous hill to climb as all new high school students do of learning how to be in nine classes and taking charge of extracurriculars and just a lot of complexity. And no one ever said starting high school was easy. In fact, famously, we know like starting middle school and starting high school are big transitions for almost all students, even strong students will often struggle. And we know that, you know, in the wake of this pandemic, a lot of kids are having various school related struggles around things like executive function, but outsourcing it to parents doesn't set them up for success. You know, if you have a kid who is you know, in special education, has an IEP, has a 504. It may be that there's someone at school they can be checking in with, but 
the role of a parent should not be to sort of hound a kid about every single quiz, every single homework assignment, every project, because it turns parents into the police at an age in adolescence when kids should be developmentally separating more, figuring this stuff out for themselves, experiencing some of the consequences of more like, as I would say, like minor failures, not like not graduating from high school level failure, which, you know, in our society is probably too dangerous to allow, right? Like we can't just let a bunch of kids become sort of casualties of not like not doing any, you know what I mean? Like I know high school counselors who are begging kids to do that one credit to finish because we all know that not having a high school diploma in this society is incredibly, you know, leaves kids in incredibly vulnerable economically and personally, right? None of us want that outcome. We all want to see kids graduate high school and ideally have access to, you know, whether it's community college, four-year college, trade school, like we want kids to get education beyond secondary now. And so we know that that's critical. At the same time, if parents are hounding them about every quiz from age 14 to 18, you know, is that setting kids up to be successful and independent? And where is that middle ground? And high schools, I think right now are kind of desperate for kids to graduate and be successful. And so they're leaning into parents as kind of a, I would say a crutch or a solution by using these grading apps, but they're not, and LMSs, but they're not setting kids up for success. And the worry that I have, and I see it with my own kid, um, but I see this in many families, you know, around the country where I, I interviewed parents and kids where a zero comes into the grade book because say a kid has missed a quiz or missed a day of school because they're out sick. And then the parent immediately panics because they see the zero, not knowing that the child has already talked to the teacher and arranged a plan. But for now, that zero is what stands in the grade book. And they're almost getting too much information too soon. It's not the end of the semester grade, but that one zero is, you know, if you can do the math, like will really knock their grade down for a while. And so the worry gets in the way of the child sort of fixing the problem, right? And that's not great. We want kids to be able to solve their own problems, but we don't want them to be panicking about their GPA on an hourly basis. It's interesting what you said. I have a, um, I have two kids myself, pretty young, and one is in middle school. Um, and he's, he's 12, he's in seventh grade. And when I remember the, the leader at his middle school, the principal said something really that's stuck with my wife and I, when we started, he's like, we are honoring the transition and just set us all up, like prepared us for like, this is a, this is a messy time in even, you know, maybe you all think of great kids, but like, they're going to, it's going to be a hard time. Um, and that was, you know, it's like not always, um, you know, an easy thing for parents frankly, right? And and educators. But I think in these, I think pre- people in in middle schools know know what they're getting into as far as like seeing this developmental stage um, <laughs> firsthand for a while. Agree. And bless the middle school teachers. I we, we were lucky to be in a great middle school and anyone who can like embrace and, and thrive working with that age of kids is just like a very talented educator, I, I feel. And it, it really is We've all met some incredible people. And so, you know, and I'm not here again to say that people using these tools are poor educators. We're all doing the best we can with the tools that we have. And I think that learning management systems are great. But the other other challenge I see is that they kind of breadcrumb out the curriculum and the kids can't always see the big picture. Mm. And I do think going back to having a printed syllabus in some cases, especially in high school, I think would be very valuable and, you know, figuring out also just doing more orienting to kids and families on how to use the LMS, giving them a sense of maybe I've told a lot of kids, take this off your phone. If you're checking your GPA every hour, 
take it off your phone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, interrupt that habit. Check it every couple of weeks. Yeah. Now you mentioned you have you have a child in in school at the moment. I think a teenager, is that right? Yeah, 14-year-old ninth grader. Oh, ninth grade, so high school. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. But you- But middle school is a huge, huge transition. That's when a lot of kids get phones and get their own social media. And so on top of all these other apps, they're also kind of surveilling each other. You know, they're on Snapchat maps and they can see where everyone is, all their friends. And that is tremendously complicated. You know, we are we are in that moment now where we're deciding, you know, it, the big it's like one of the big discussions I'm having with friends is that are parents is like a watch, a phone or nothing, you know, because we hear like everybody's got a phone or everyone's got something. Um and we've been, we've been trying to hold off, but, but then again, you know, my wife and I use our phones all the time. So it's, 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 a yeah, these are powerful it's, communication devices, but we are giving them to kids right at the age where their communication is getting more complex, the ex- inclusion and exclusion, and that just their identity formation, like a lot of stuff happens in middle school, which tends to be now when kids have phones. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it comes to come, comes to mind as we talk that, once upon a time, there was a complaint about helicopter parents. I mean, you still hear this term, but it feels like the, the, the situations you're describing in your book and we're talking about are so far beyond like, it, it's something even more, <laughs> more surveilling than a helicopter than if someone was literally like watching over an helicopter in a weird way, because, um, but how, yeah, how would you, um, describe what is and like, and what's different when, when these devices are in, you know, Um, hands of so many middle and high schoolers. Yeah, I think parents can be reading the group texts. They can be very involved in their kids' social lives in a way that may or may not be healthy, like for their own mental health. You know, do you really want to relive middle school? It was bad enough when you went probably. So I think it's, it's really tough because parents have so much access to tracking our kids' location, you know, seeing their grades all the time, reading their texts potentially. And then it becomes a question of like, is that what a good parent does? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Do I need to know everything about where my kid is and who they're talking to all the time? You know, and I recognize that there are real dangers or your kid could be on, you know, Discord or social media and meet someone really problematic. So I get that worry. But at the same time, I really lean into in both of my books and growing up in public and my previous book, Screenwise, in telling parents that if we can mentor more than we monitor. And part of mentoring could be, you know, working with your middle schooler who's a new phone user on who they're allowed to be in contact with or deciding what apps are a yes or a no. It's not just handing over the phone and saying good luck. Uh, But it's also not just putting an app on the phone to track them and kind of hoping that that will do the parenting for us. Mentoring is actually teaching our kids how to communicate. You know, how do you email the teacher How do you deal with a friend in a group text when things are tense? How do you deal with maybe getting out of a group text where it's become toxic or inappropriate or someone asking you for an inappropriate picture or making a really cruel joke or saying something racist or homophobic on social media? Like, what do you do? What do you do if your friend puts you on YouTube and didn't ask for permission first? You know, like there's so many situations that our kids need help dealing with. And so many parents, I think, either throw up our hands, say like, I don't know how to deal with this. Good luck. Or we kind of over worry and we want to use, for example, software to monitor them, but we don't try just talking to them. 
And part of the challenge is that we got a lot of information from listening to our parents on the phone, like a lot of information about how to communicate with empathy and set boundaries and deal with conflicts. And our kids are watching us thumb out our lives and we're not doing enough to kind of talk them through some of the common communication dilemmas that are likely to come up. Yeah. So many times um, it's like, as we think back to what it, you know, what the sort of scenario was when we were kids, I think that is, that is true. And like you mentioned at one point, it's like once upon a time you had, we had to, you know, drag the the phone into the, you know, or, or maybe we had a phone in our bedroom only, but then we could be probably overheard maybe as kids or, and that's an interesting point. Like kids were always overhearing their parents, you know, talk through whatever with a neighbor, but now with so much happening in text and digital forms, it's, it's, there's just not that modeling. Exactly. So I think the modeling is incredibly important and there are ways we can do it. And schools can also be places where kids learn about how to write an appropriate email, what to do if you have to check in with a teacher, you know, we need to mentor kids more on communication because kids are kind of deer in the headlights sometimes when they get a phone call offering them an internship or a job, like they don't always know how to deal with those communications. How do, yeah, you mentioned we could do it. I mean, in some ways, you know, how can it be more built in? You know, I think I see the the systems that, you know, schools and, and teachers set up as trying to, you know, everyone's so busy and there's so much to do to try to have some sort of structure around it. But like, what is, what are some ways that you recommend for educators or parents to, to, to do, to have this be part of, of the routine? Whether it's having kids, you know, play Roblox in the house without their headphones on sometimes. So you can notice like how they're talking with their friends and kind of maybe support them if. Oh, both sides of the conversation. Sure. Yeah. So you can kind of, kind of hear, get, give them some guidance. So when I say mentoring over monitoring, I don't mean we can't like casually overhear what went down on Roblox and be like, Hey, I have some thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean is again, that we don't want to like install a tracker and get a full transcript and then be like, this is exactly what you're in trouble for. We want to focus on teaching kids to do the right thing rather than catching them do the wrong thing. And that that's so, so important. And so a lot of times it is like, Hey, it sounds like you guys are having trouble, you know, getting a resolution on that. Can can I help or tell me what you think went down or or even like say your kid wants to join the 5th grade group text or the 7th grade group text like, okay, well what would you do if everyone on the group text is talking in a mean way about somebody? Like what would your response be and just even get going through some of those ideas before they even get on there. Instead of the give me your let me see that, let me read through it. Mm. Exactly. And you know, Uh, with schools, I've seen a lot of schools actually do a really good job with email where if a kid writes an email that's maybe inappropriate, like writing back and saying, okay, like try again with a salutation or even doing lessons like in an ELA class where like, let's look at these three emails. How could we fix them to be, you know, better communications? You know, let's, let's, let's edit these. I think some grownups could use this too. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned too, um, that you're hearing from um, parents and and students that they're, you know, if they're on social media, which so many are, and posting publicly, you know, through whatever platform, Instagram or um, Snapchat, even depending, well, I guess some of that's not public, but, you know, they're out there, TikTok, um, putting out media often from a young age. And I hear that there's a concern 
that somehow colleges might be looking at this if people are applying and that it might somehow come back to to haunt them some message out there. And you ask a question in, in, in the book, and I'm curious about this. Like you say, like, well, are colleges really stalking kids' social media posts? Um, I guess what perception is out there first off? And then what did you find is the answer to that question? The, yeah, the perception is they could be. And I think a lot of educators and parents will wield that as a threat to teens, partly because we're so nervous about what teens will post. And we recognize that our authority is diminishing, but you know, the authority of Stanford or, you know, McAllister, Princeton seems so, you know, kids are so focused on college in some communities. And so it feels like, oh, this is a way we can scare them into compliance again. We can keep them from posting, you know, something problematic if they think they won't get into college. And first of all, Mm. the reason not to do that is because we're telling kids don't get caught instead of emphasizing, be a good human, be in alignment with your own values. Don't share anything that's harmful. And here's the thing is most kids who post harmful things don't get caught. Plenty of kids are walking around at Northwestern and Princeton who maybe did post something problematic. So it's not an accurate threat. Most colleges are not doing a sort of, you know, colleges are not doing an NSA style sort of deep dive on your, on their applicants. They have seven minutes to look at their applicant, you know, maybe 10 minutes. They're not, they're not trying to figure out what your discord handle or your Instagram name is. Um, You're talking about what, what's known about how selective college is kind of the process. They're not spending. The, you know, that's if you make the initial cut, like a lot of people are getting eliminated by whatever transcripts and test scores and other things before they even get that 10 minutes of consideration. So if this is like, you've already passed through a few hurdles and now your application is being considered, then they're going to more deeply look at your recommendations, your essays. They're not going out of their way to do a deep dive. The only way colleges will find out about something problematic you posted on social is potentially if you harmed someone in high school badly enough that they're, and they know where you're applying, they might reach out to admissions. And that's thankfully a rare phenomenon, but it could happen. Or if you're a recruited athlete, and especially if say you're like a recruited, I don't know, volleyball player, and you've sent them your YouTube channel with all your volleyball stuff on it. And you also have like something really problematic on your YouTube, like, but you sent them that then they might be like, wait, why is there also a fight club on this person's YouTube? Like, that's not going to be good. So I'm not suggesting that it never happens that kids run into admissions trouble with what they've posted online or what someone has posted online about them. But it's very rare. And it's not the reason I would lead with to talk with a middle schooler or a high schooler about how to behave online. Instead, I would really focus on behaving in, in alignment with your own values And not focusing on like, oh, well, Princeton won't want you if you say that. Because if you say to your seventh grader, you know, a fancy college won't want you if you post bad words in a group chat, it's completely untrue. There's a million kids walking around. I live near Northwestern University, walking around at Northwestern who got through the gauntlet of a very hard college admissions process to get there, who did say bad words on their middle school group text. Like nobody, Hmm. nobody knows or cares right? So that's not valid. But it's also not the reason to tell kids not to do it. The reason not to harm others, to to badmouth others, and certainly to say things that are hateful is because we don't want to cause harm. And we want to lead with that and not with, you know, don't have a racist post so you won't get into Princeton because that's completely messed up thing to say, right? What we want to say is if that joke, if you're not sure why it's funny, if that meme seems like it harms a group of people, targets a group of people, if you think that's really offensive, if that's a mean thing to say about an individual or a group, then don't be part of it. Don't like it. Don't amplify it. Don't share it. And it's especially important to say to younger kids, especially 
middle schoolers, I would say, because they're often very attracted to edgy humor, but don't always get why it's edgy. If you don't understand something fully and you think it could be a problem, don't post it because you might not even understand that that's super xenophobic or that's a stereotype or that's harmful. So if in doubt, don't share it out. That's a really important rule to share with kids. And to, you know, if they have shared something or liked something or that was harmful to someone, they need to make the repair and the amends in the moment. They don't need to wait until they get caught. You know, from your tone, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you're seeing plenty of people not take this advice as parents and, and those out there. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you want to read a story about kids and a racist Instagram account where things went terribly wrong and where the school, frankly, didn't handle it very well, read Accountable by Dashka Slater, which is an excellent book. And I think just won a bunch of big awards this year. And it's, it's a YA book, nonfiction reported book about a school in Albany, California, where kids had a racist account. So, I mean, I, in, in my chapter on damage control and growing up in public, talk a lot about how schools and communities can handle things better when things go wrong, when kids do post things that are problematic. And a huge thing that we need to do is start focusing more on supporting the targeted community and not just on the perpetrator. Like say a kid does something bad, like posting a racial slur, thinking that this is funny or outrageous. And we're like, how do you think this in 2023? But of course, someone does it, right? And they do it. Mm. Instead of just focusing on the perpetrator, we need to see that kid as the sort of symptom of a larger problem. Not that we don't consequence and focus on and support the, the perpetrator in repairing and learning from their mistake. I'm not saying ignore it. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I am saying don't drive that kid out of town or just expose and expose and expose and shame and shame and shame that kid because people do that in an effort to separate themselves from the harm that was caused and to be like, not in our town. We don't know where this kid learned this, but it wasn't from us, right? And so I think when we do that, we don't address the targeted community and support them and their safety. And we don't address the wider problem. If you've got a video of one kid saying a racial slur in your town, you better believe that other kids have been saying that and they didn't get caught and their video isn't circulating right now. So instead of circulating and circulating it and trying to separate yourself from that child or teenager by shaming them, Instead, you need to lean into what does our anti-racist education look like or what does our inclusivity look like or where did that kid get that idea that that misogynist slur was so funny? What are we doing about gender equity in our schools? Like, We need to lean into the bigger problem and support the targeted community when these things happen. And instead, we so often go after the one kid that got caught, <laughs> like mm -hmm. make them the pariah. And I have huge problems with that too, because that takes that 12 or 15 year old and makes it really hard for them to move forward and learn from their mistake because it gets so focused on shaming and ostracizing them. Well, I wanted to to spend a little bit of time focused on higher ed for a minute, because, you know, I know you, you do talk about that in the book as well. When, when traditionally, you know, when back, back in the day, you know, when, when we were going off to college in going off to college, there was separation. Like there was, there was, there were kind of a, a, a communication blackout um, a lot of the time. And it seems like things are very different now. And you talk to some families that, you know, we're using some of these same, you know, tracking apps and, and things that, that are very common that we've mentioned in the high school and, and uh, middle school level, even after even after a student has gone off to college and has maybe left the, the house. 
Yeah. And I think parents are really getting accustomed. Like if you're tracking your kids location in high school and you're still paying their phone bill, which almost all parents of college students, I think are still paying the phone bill or still in the family plan. (laughs) Why not still track them on life 360? That's, that's a popular app that, that just remind us what that one does. It tracks people's location and everyone sort of opts into a circle of location tracking. So technically, if you're on there, your kid could be also tracking your location. And a lot of families love it. I'm going to say I did. I did talk to families where everyone seemed seemed pretty into it. I have concerns about it. And there were definitely families where the kids felt really violated and mistrusted when their parents used it. So there was a range of responses. Um, I would say grading tracking was more universally despised by kids and location tracking, interestingly, I did meet more kids who at least accepted it in high school um, and a few who were like, I'm okay with my parents tracking me on road trips and things in college, but also many found it invasive. So I don't want to, my values are that it's invasive to be really clear. <laughs> you know, that I'm very clear about gotcha. that in the book. And But I, the range of responses I got was interesting. And I do think there's overall a very anxious and actually the Wall Street Journal was just, uh, there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal about you know, anxious kids saying, oh, you can still track me. So I guess there is an element of anxiety of, of anxiety in our culture right now where some emerging adults are like, you can still track me because I'm worried about my safety. And I just worry about if we live in a society where people feel like your neighbors or the people around you won't take care of you, but your parents in another state are the people who can keep you safe. Like, A, I think you're ascribing superpowers to your parents that they don't have. Like, you know, if you're in New Jersey and your parents are in California and you feel threatened, like, I really hope you reach out to someone in New Jersey to keep you safe because I don't think your parents can do that much on Life360. But so I think that's also like a, like giving your parents superpowers they don't have in your mind. Mm-hmm. So it's a false sense of security there. Yeah. 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 It's a false sense of security. And it's keeping the relationship very infantilizing. Like, do your parents really need to know where you woke up when you're 21? Like, is that, do you want to be in that relationship? And as an adult, as a parent, do I want to know that about my kid at 21, 22, even if I'm paying the phone bill, you know, or one dad told me he could see if his daughter was skipping class at college by seeing if her phone moved from her dorm room to her classes. My parents wouldn't have even known my schedule, like what day a week I had, what classes they had no idea. Hmm. So I just think that level of knowledge about young adults' lives accustoms a kind of a dependency that I think is harmful to emerging independence. That somehow, while well-intentioned, it can stifle that um, kind of launching into adulthood for the for the person. Yeah. And a lot of parents are gobsmacked by the FERPA and HIPAA rules that when I was a college professor, you know, parents every once in a while would try to call me up about their child's grade or checking in on their kid. And I would just kind of FERPA, FERPA, FERPA them over the phone. And, and remind us, what is the so federal, you know, Education Privacy Act? What, so remind us what the what, what the your rules child's are. professor cannot talk to you about how they're doing unless you they your child has sort of signed off on an agreement. And most professors will not welcome hearing directly from parents. That's not going to endear anyone to the professor. Um, so kids in higher ed, yeah, you know, young adults in 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 college in higher ed when they are 18 in particular, uh, have these privacy rights with both their education and health records, which means parents need to set kids up to do things like manage their own chronic illnesses, navigate their own grading disputes independently. And a good time to practice that is high school. And if parents are so involved in high school with both the grading side and the health side, 
that the kids don't get a chance to learn how to do it themselves. And so a lot of the final chapter of growing up in public is how can we help our kids have the skills to navigate, including maybe when to call us, you know, for advice, but being in an advising role and a coaching role is not the same as calling the professor directly. Right. Or having, yeah, or having this, yeah, like you said, the, back to the surveillance or having this awareness from obsessively tracking an app that, that, that they're not where they're supposed to be, so to speak. And I say this lovingly to parents because I am an anxious parent myself and we were living through an anxious time and COVID and school shootings. This is, it's understandable why parents are so anxious, frankly. This is a, a stressful time to be a human and to raise a, a young human. Mm. But I do think parents need to cultivate their own interests and their own lives so that they don't have time. Like if your kid is in college, this is the time to do the thing you've always wanted to try, you know, like get, get busy with your own stuff and be there for your kids. Yes. When they call you absolutely be there for them, but don't be hovering so much that you are. And again, I just read an article in the cut, uh, you know, about the parent Facebook groups at college and parents trying to set their kids up with friends. Mm. Don't be that parent. Like, if your kid needs help, let them figure it out, including going through a rough time. Because yeah. there may be times where kids go through a rough time and things don't work out or they transfer schools or they have to take time off or they lose a scholarship. But we can't always prevent that. There's no way to insulate your child from all of these hard knocks that life you know, may bring. But if you think about your own experience of maybe a class that you had to drop because you were failing or, you know, mm -hmm. a scholarship that you lost or other, you learn from that. Or I think about like jobs that I lost early in my career because maybe I, you know, wasn't a good fit or I didn't have the communication skills to ask for help when I needed them. I don't, I don't wish my parents had swooped in to protect me from those experiences because they made me who I am today. Wow. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the things that I heard you interviewed recently on another another podcast where you mentioned that there's some sense that you see higher ed might be might change a little bit or need to change as a result of this environment we're in. Um, and I was curious to, to to hear more about that, if you will, about like what um, you know, what what are some things not just about surveillance, but about how higher ed kind of teaching might might change or need to change in this in this world we're in. I mean, I do think higher ed may need to do more to like lean into kind of life skills and social skills. And I would love to see campuses support young people connecting with one another, including actually by putting down their phones. And I, I mean, I say this again as like I'm a tech optimist, but when I see young people eating by themselves on a college campus and not talking to others, like that does concern me in terms of like what they're social experience of college will be like, because that can be such a profoundly wonderful time for connection. But in, in other words, you're seeing, and I've seen this on campuses I visited recently, like the 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 lone students sitting with each with a phone swiping. Right, exactly. And, and I think anything colleges can do to kind of work on the culture there and make it more fun to put down your phone and engage with others. I mean, I just remember closing the dining hall with my friends, right? Like literally like getting mm. kicked out of the dining hall because we're just sitting over our food talking and the people, you know, like trying to be like, okay, you got to go, <laughs> like go talk somewhere else. <laughs> and I just, I feel sad for kids, not young people, not having that experience. I think higher ed institutions do need to do more with mental health supports and just better training of like what, you know, if they do see signs that young people are struggling, like making those referrals, um, because we are seeing 
you know, losses to suicide. I think the Jed Foundation and other organizations are doing a really great job supporting colleges and universities on both assessing signs that someone might be in danger and supporting young people who are struggling with mental health. I just think it can't be on parents. And I, I know that it can't be all on colleges and universities either, that they're not really set up for that. But I do think that some of them, you know, won't acknowledge the wait list for their counseling centers and other things. And I, I think the uh, incredible tuition that people are paying to have access to college, so much of it is going to fancy gyms, for example, or nicer dorms. And I think, you know, hire a few more counselors, like, like focus on keeping young people safe and alive and with us. Like maybe you don't need that fancy elliptical machine as much as you need a third counselor. Right. And it seems like a bigger the, the bigger question of the fostering belonging, not just in individual mental health, which totally some an issue we're covering here at EdSurge, but but to to think about more of these like in the world of the phone and constant social media, you know, presence, like what is what does it mean to, to be like running a good college, you know, what does it mean to to have a student life? Right. And I think I think that COVID was just a tremendous blow to campus cultures and everything is still coming back. Residential life. Uh, I think the current war obviously is really Mm -hmm. straining relationships on campus and colleges are kind of struggling to help students, you know, live together and, and be civil with one another and also, you know, deepen their commitments and understanding what's happening in the world. I mean, the, the positive side of, of that climate issue is that kids are engaging with what's happening in the world. The, negative side is they may be doing it in a way that makes it really hard for them to all live together and support one another. And they may be being reactive in some cases rather than responsive um, or not going deep enough in educating themselves about what's happening. But I choose as an optimist, again, to see the positive sides of kids engaging and young people engaging politically, because I think we want to see young people engage politically. What I don't want to see is them disengage Um, But I also don't want to see them just turn on each other in fear and anxiety without deeply reflecting on the issues at hand. Okay, so we've started from the the youngest students and worked all the way up into the 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 messiness of students contemplating the 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 tough world we're in right now. (laughs) And I really appreciate your perspective. This has been this has been a pleasure. Is there anything you want to kind of close with or 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 highlight as we as we close? I think we just all want to be trying to run our devices and not let them run us and Mm -hmm. try to stay in alignment with what we share online and make sure that it it reflects who we think we are and not, uh, you know, not share anything that we think is harmful. And and if we can do as much as we can to lean into teaching young people about using their empathy and remembering their other people on the other end of all these screen-based interactions, then that's a huge precept that hopefully will make their experience in digital communities really positive, whether they're, you know, a second grader doing Roblox with a friend, whether they're an eighth grader joining Snapchat, whether they're, you know, in college, you know, joining a social media group or a group text, all of these young people, I think, want to do the right thing. They want to have positive experiences. And the more we can help them learn how to do that, the better. Well, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. 
Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. And if you like the show, we hope you will follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Often people ask me, are you on Spotify? Yep, we're on Spotify. And you should check out all of our coverage of education and how it's changing. Just go to edsurge.com and you'll find new articles there every day. You can also sign up for all of our newsletters. Just look for the word newsletters. This episode was put together by me and you can follow me on Twitter. I guess it's called X now at J.R. Young. Or you can find my website at jeffyoung.net. Script editing this week by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks so much for listening.